Amen. Okay, if you stand for the reading of God's word and reverence for not simply the word, but the God who has given to us. And I am going to read from Colossians, the second chapter, beginning at verse 8. Paul has been talking about his ministry. He has told them that they are alive in Christ. And now he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to his people. And you may be seated. Well, we're Lord's Day 27. This is the second look at baptism. Uh, questions 72 to 74 in the, the catechism. And I would remind you of some of the key words, the sacrament, something that is sacred, set apart. It has mystery. There's a seed that is planted. It's a sign and a seal. And today we're going to take a look at in, baptizing infants. And I put it that way. It's not infant baptism as though that were different from adult baptism. There is only one baptism. And it's that way. We call it pedo baptism and credo. Baptism. Pedo is a baptism of children of believers. Credo is done on profession of faith. We are looking at a catechism that was developed in the midst of the Reformation, and it, the Reformation was a time of great turmoil. Uh, you had at the center the Reformers like Luther, Calvin, Swingley, uh, the person who wrote this catechism. And on one side, you had the Roman Catholic Church, and on the other side, you had the Anabaptists. And there was some really vicious fighting going on. I mean, you think the political turmoil of our time is vicious. Uh, this is horrible, what took place. But that's what was going on. And because of the turmoil, you had some very dug-in people in their position. And all the reformers were trying to do was to tear off the layers of traditions and practices that had accumulated over the centuries, some 1,500 years from the early church, getting back to how the early church fathers saw the church as well as how the scriptures uh, delineated the church. It's like 
refinishing a cabinet. If you're in our dining room, you'll see a cabinet in the corner that is, looks nice because it's wood. When we bought it, they had put antique paint on it. We're going, why, why? And it took a long time to get that antique paint off and refinish it and have it up there. Well, the periods of the church was like that. A lot of paint put on a very fine thing that had taken place. Reformers were, taking, were trying to get it back. And there are two sides that they were dealing with. One, Roman Catholicism, which deals, which the first two questions of the Lord's Day 27 deals with. Question 72, is then the outward washing with water itself the washing of way of sin? No, for only the blood of Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit cleanses us from all sin. Here you have the Roman Catholic Church, which basically had gone to a position of baptismal, Regeneration. That is, when the priest, the proper officiated, did it in a proper way with the proper water, the child, the infant, was regenerated, given new life. Though born in sin, soon after when the sacrament took place, they were a new creation in Christ. And that began a whole process that was fed by the other sacraments, the other six sacraments, if they could be a part of them, to, for their justification. The justification was not imputed, that is, declared to them. It was infused. That is, you worked for your justification by going to Mass, saying your confessions, doing all the things you're supposed to do. And at the end of your life, God would infuse you with the righteousness, or you had been infusing yourself with the righteousness, and he would finish the job, and you would be accepted into his heaven. So it's a combination of what Christ did on the cross and your obedience, especially to the church, led to your being justified. And the reformers, and especially Luther, said, no, 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 not even close. The righteousness is a declaration of God that you are righteous because you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And in doing that, they would say, no, no, outward washing with water doesn't do a thing. It's only the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. It always depends upon the work of the triune God, not upon anything that we do. Then you get to question 73, where he's, uh, the question is asked, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? And the answer, God speaks thus not without great cause, namely, not only to teach us thereby that like as the filthiness of the body is taken away by water, so our sins also are taken away by the blood and spirit of Christ. But much more, that by this divine pledge and token, he may assure us that we are as really washed from our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water. We all hope you took a bath or a shower this morning, or maybe last night. 
because sitting next to you may be unbearable if you didn't. But all you did was wash off the outward crud. Something inwardly has to happen. And that's what baptism signifies. A change, a circumcision, or as Paul would put it here to the Colossians, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands by putting off the body by the circumcision of Christ, being buried with him and then resurrected with him. That kind of action takes place. And that says that what happens in the, the uh, act of baptism makes no difference in the person. But there is a difference that takes place. And that's what they're fighting for on one side. It is that Jesus said, it is finished when he was on the cross, and then he has to apply that to us. So you have this battle here. Then you have the battle with the Anabaptists on the other side. You know, the Pope was right. The Pope told Martin Luther, if you translate the scriptures into the vernacular and you let people read it on their own, it is going to create such havoc in the church that the church will split. You give people an opportunity to come to their own opinions and things, horrible things will take place. And that's part of what happened in the Reformation. Luther came back from the Diet of Worms. He was kidnapped and he went into the, uh, a castle and there he translated the Greek New Testament and the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, into the vernacular German, which created the German language in essence, but also that the plowboy in the field could read his Bible and come to understand it because they would know it in his own tongue, not the Vulgate, not the Latin translation. But what happened, it set people free. And it's like a pony that is set free from the stall that runs out into the field and just begins to buck and jump and do whatever. That's what happened. In fact, what pulled Luther out of probably his, his great time of being by himself and doing his, the work he loved to do was what was taking place in the churches. The peasants revolted and they went in and they sacked the cathedrals. They burned everything, the altar, and anything that had a smidgen of Roman Catholicism. They hung the priests and the deacons. So you could drive down the roads of Germany and watch these bodies hanging from trees. You think, we're vicious today? I haven't seen a body hanging from a tree for at least five years. Or a little longer than that. They tried to eradicate anything that came before. And even legitimate traditions that took place. And what their concern was, and really what this has drawn out, and the issue that has left us with, is the difference between individualism and community. If anything, the Anabaptists went to the pole of individualism. 
You got your Bible, you read it, you come up with your own theology, your own ideas. Your faith is your faith. It is only your faith. And you operate it. Meanwhile, the reformers and 1,500 years of church history has said no. It's not individualism. It's a community affair. We, uh, we like to say the Nicene Creed here, correct? And you will say it. How does it start? We believe. How does the Apostles' Creed begin? I believe. And there's a big difference between that. The moment you say we believe, you have put yourself into a community of believers. And you are part of it. And you do not have a right to your own individual interpretation. There's a community that helps you understand what goes on. And so the Anabaptists, like their name says, Anna means, again, baptism. Baptist has to do with baptism. They said, infant, baptizing infants is verboten. Good German word. Not legitimate. You have to be rebaptized if you're going to be a member of Christ's church. And that's what they did. Everyone who came in. Uh, Peg and I have gone to a variety of churches, especially since I retired. And it's always interesting to go into a Baptist church and say, well, what's it take to be members? Well, you have to be rebaptized. You mean my baptism as an infant is not good enough? No, 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 no. You have to make an individual personal confession of faith. And that's the only way you can be baptized. Well, I closed, closed my Bible, put on my coat, and walked out. Because <laughs> as you'll find out, I don't accept that. Uh, and you'll find out why that is. Again, what, what is at stake here between these two is what does it mean to be a member of a church? Is it something you join or is it something that calls you to be a part of it? Big difference. Major difference. And that was part of the battle in the Reformation. And we talked about how the Roman Catholic Church, the fight between the Anabaptists and the Reformers was just as vicious. The reformers were so dedicated against the Anabaptist position that they were literally put them on trial for heresy and have them killed. Boy, aren't you glad that doesn't happen between churches now? That's how dedicated they were not only to their position, but how, how much they considered this whole idea of baptism. So... After those first two questions of, refer of Roman Catholics, you get the last question that deals with Anabaptists. Are infants also to be baptized? Well, yes. For since they, as well as their parents, belong to the covenant and people of God, and both redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit, who works through faith, are through the blood of Christ, promised to them no less than to their parents, they also are they are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be engrafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers 
as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, in place of which in the New Testament baptism is appointed. They as well as their parents belong to the covenant and people of God. And redemption belongs to them. That's the big question. Now, a couple disclaimers. Just so you know, I'm going to try to be honest with you. First of all, there is nowhere in the Bible an explicit verse that says you must baptize infants. That kind of explicitity. And going, I knew it. I knew it. It's not there. On the other side, there's no verse in the Bible that says you shall not baptize infants. Therefore, it's an open question. It is also built on inference. It is not that clear. In the history of the church, it has been done both ways. Now, primarily, uh, infants have been allowed to be baptized, but there have been some areas and some places where even in the early church, we're not too sure if they baptized infants or not. So what we do when we study this is we deal with inferences. But we do know that baptism of infants happened until the Reformation and the the Anabaptists, and then they changed the game and said only credo baptism. You have to be able to make a personal statement of faith to be baptized. And I realize some of you grew up in that situation and this is near and dear to to your heart. And I also realize this may not convince you what we're going to talk about for the next 20 minutes or so. But like the Reformation, I want you to think about where the church was in the early centuries, but that maybe there has been painted on that beautiful oak cabinet antique paint that needs to be taken off. Just give it a fair healing, their hearing, and, and then you'll be healed. <laughs> I also checked to make sure no tomatoes were brought in this morning. <laughs> but I do move around so I can duck. But that's, that's the basis. The focus of, of between Anabaptists and the Reformed and the focus in our Heidelberg Catechism is what uh, is the focus on baptism. Is a baptism a dedication to God? And that's basically the Anabaptist, or we would call it Baptist position, credo-baptism. Is a focus on my dedication of myself to God or in the reformed is it the focus on God who makes promises to his people including their whole family again is it individualistic or is it a community and it does it go back to the primary community of all of life and that is the family and the reformers would say yeah it's this And this is why they would say it and why the creed puts it this way. That the focus of the scripture is is partly on the relationship to the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The question is, is there a fundamental difference between the Old and New Testament? Or does the New Testament fulfill the Old Testament? So you read something like Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says, I will make a new covenant. I will put their law within their heart. And you will not need to teach anyone, which means I, what I'm doing is superfluous if that's taken it that way. A new covenant. And people read that. New covenant. What's a new covenant? It's something that's different. Is it? Now, the word new is actually trans, uh, a word that means fresh. Fresh. For instance, I like getting cars when my old car fails. I go to a used car dealer, especially if they deal with uh, cars that have been leased because they keep up their cars. I go out and I buy a car that's got 40, 50,000 miles on it because I know I can get another 150 to 200,000 miles on it if I work it well. That's an old car, but it's brand new to me. And the dealer has made a lot of work to make it feel and smell like a new car until I look down at the odometer. It's 50,000 miles. Oh, But it's new. It's fresh to me. And to me, that's what the Old Testament and the New Testament is. They're not different. You didn't break from the Old Testament to make the New Testament or the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It simply became fresh and bigger. Another way in which I explain it, it's like waiting for a friend at Kroger's. And it's a nice sunny day and you're standing outside and you see this shadow coming around a corner. And you look at the shadow and say, boy, that looks like my friend. It's huge. No, it looks like my friend. Until they get around the corner and say, that's not my friend. And you look at another shadow and say, that looks like my friend. And sure enough, your friend comes around the corner. Now, when that happens, do you look at the shadow? Well, hi, Charlie. How are you doing? No, you look at your friend. And that's to me, is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is, as Hebrews tells us, it's a shadow. The New Testament, the New Covenant, is a substance of what was in the Old. And therefore... It is, it is the fulfillment. It is a freshness, or it's the covenant done in a freshment, fresh way. And that brings us to an, another reason why baptizing infants has been a part of the Reformed churches and part of the church throughout all the centuries. And that is the idea of the word covenant. That the people of God belong to a covenant people. And again, this is so counter to the individualistic individuals and the pietism of our day. No, I am my own Christian. I find my own way. I only have one Lord, and I only have one person who tells me what to do. And you know, that's, to me, it's one of the reasons why people change churches. Is because they don't feed me there. Well, only little babies and old people have to be fed. They don't do what I want to do. Well, maybe what you want to do isn't good. I don't feel loved. Well, maybe it's because you don't love because you're all in your own little island and you haven't joined the community. 
and given yourself. You know, when you get married, you pledge yourself, and this, this is free premarital advice. <laughs> you pledge yourself to one another and said, I will love you. It doesn't mean I'm going to have strong feelings because there are times you don't have strong feelings about one another. Yeah, you really have negative strong feelings. But you say, I will do whatever's necessary to help the other person, even if it's to my detriment. Even if I have to renege on something I said because what I said was wrong. Ask Peg how many times I have to do that. Now, what, that's love. And love in a community is giving yourself to the whole and doing away with your individual style. That's what covenant is all about. And it's a family affair. Turn with me to Genesis. Always a good place to go because it has all the germs and the seeds of everything else. Genesis 17, God has already promised Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. He has already reckoned him righteousness in, verse, in chapter 15. And then he comes years later, before Isaac's birth, and only when Ishmael was there, not the promised son that God had said. And beginning in verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Ab- or Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. See how easy you slip into what you think it says? Abraham, father of one, into Abraham, father of many. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He's only got one child, and that child isn't even the promised child. It says, I have made you. You are already a father of a multitude. What? And a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. The guy is up in his 80s. The last thing we expect an 80 year old man. Is to father children by a 70 year old woman. But he says you are going to have a multitude. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then if you skip down to verse 9 and 10. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house are bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he is bought with your money shall certainly be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 11. 
circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And even if you bought a slave who was 25 years old and they were not circumcised, you had to circumcise that slave. And your, first, and your, your sons at eight days old had to be circumcised. I don't know about you. I'd rather be circumcised when I'm eight days old than when I'm 25 years old. In fact, there's a story of where uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's sons demanded the people, the men be circumcised. And on the third day when they couldn't walk, that's the sense of it, they went in and slaughtered them. It's painful. And Jesus, when he was born, was taken up the temple to be circumcised. Moses was on his way back from the desert. And God was going to kill him. Because he hadn't been circumcised, nor had he circumcised his sons. And his wife had to do the circumcision. Otherwise, Moses would have died. That's how serious it was to God. Because that's the sign of being in the covenant, in the agreement. I will be your God, you will be my people, and so will your offspring, your children. Well, that then brings us to Acts, the second chapter. which I know is in here because I saw it the other day. Peter finishes his sermon. Or at least the summary of his sermon that we have written here. Verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the, next, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That means you and, you and me. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice, like circumcision was for the children uh, of believers. Peter says baptism is for the children of believers. It is just as much for them. Or you get, and again, I won't admit to you this is inferences, but I think it's a really good inference, Acts 16. And the sweet sound of paper being pushed over, yes, where you have the conversion of Lydia in uh, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed about them. That word household means not simply all the servants you had. And Lydia was a businesswoman. She had a very profitable business. She probably had servants and, and helpers. But that word household okios means the whole family. Everyone. Whether she had teenagers and maybe that's for why she realized she needed to be saved because she saw how bad kids were. Or 
whether it was just infants, everybody in the household was baptized. Same chapter, different verse, a little bit longer and a little bit worse. No, that's, Paul is, is uh, jailed for his preaching. And during the night, there's an earthquake while they're singing psalms and, and rejoicing. And the Philippian jailer asked them because they hadn't escaped, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, and he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your, that's the same word, household. And they spoke for the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Again, it's a covenant. The covenant is not for an individual. The covenant is for family. It is, brings us into community. And then you have a passage like Galatians 3, verse 26, or actually 27. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And what is the promise? I will be your God. You will be mine. And this includes your family. Your generations yet to come. And then you finally get to our passage, Colossians 2, where we started. Where Paul is talking to people who have been wrestling with the whole idea. Should Christians then be circumcised as the Jews were when they become Christians? And would that make them better Christians? And this is where he says, do not be uh, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. Uh, for the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Christ. And in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It, you have been buried with him in baptism which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He takes it and he says, no, your, spiritual, your circumcision is a spiritual circumcision. And it is signified by your baptism, being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. You have placed the family sign upon your children. Family, not simply of your last name, but the family sign of God himself when you have done this. And so, you know, baptism really becomes a poignant sign of the gospel. I mean, who is more helpless than a young child, young baby? Has to be fed, has to be changed, has to be walked, has to be cared for and loved. That's the sign of who we are before Christ. We are absolutely helpless. And 
It is given to us not because we earned it or because we made a statement of faith or because we did something. It is given to us out of grace, absolute grace, undeserved favor. Why? Because we are part of this community, this oikios, this family. The other part that the the catechism talks about is this distinction between, it makes a distinction between the children of believers and the children of unbelievers. It's like 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 14 that talks about the unbelieving husband or wife is set apart, made holy, sanctified by the believing spouse. That doesn't mean they become Christians. That doesn't mean all of a sudden because you marry a, a, a Christian you become one. It means that there is something that sets you apart. There's distinguishes you from before. And that's what's sanctified. Imagine this. That's an illustration I heard this week. Two girls are graduating from college. They both have boyfriends that love them dearly. One of the girls has been given a ring and one has not. Is there no distinction between the two? Does that make a difference? Ask the first girl who has a ring on her finger. There's all the distinction in the world between the two of them. And that's what happens with our children. It's, an, it's a sign that they have been engaged to be with God as he has promised to be with us and our children. And so when little Junior, little Andy, wants to go out and play with some boys that mom and dad know, you're no good, they're no good, they're going to get you into trouble. I mean, you're, you're just asking for it. You sit down and say, no, you can't do that. You sit down, you know, you've been baptized. You're distinguished from unbelieving children. You have a mark upon you of the Holy Spirit to be a child of God. And you are called to act that way. And so I'm not going to let you go play with Charlie and George and Harry because they're going to get you into trouble. Because you've been marked and distinguished as to who you are. That does not only work with children, it works with us. Why would I want to go to that place when I have been given the mark of a child of God? Why would I want to do what I'm about ready to do if I have been distinguished by baptism? Why in the world that I've been engaged with God would I go out running after some other idol? See, that's what baptism, that's why Luther would say when he was tempted when he was depressed and he was discouraged, he would say to himself in German, and I'm not going to try to say it, I am baptized. Not because he thought anything regenerative happened, but he said, I have the mark of God on me and I need to keep that. Does that mean that a child baptized is saved? Hmm? No more than a child circumcised in the Old Testament was necessarily a believer. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. And you see all those people were circumcised. But boy, not all of them acted as followers of Yahweh, of the eternal God. 
In fact, the longer you get in Kings and Chronicles, the worse it gets. And you say, no, circumcision didn't mean that they, they were believers. It simply was a sign of the covenant upon them. And even with, uh, even with credo baptism, even when you only baptize adults with a profession of faith, how many of you have ever seen someone baptize profession of faith as an adult? And 10 years down the road, they're no longer walking with Christ. Uh, if you've met any, you, you know that they're out there. Has nothing. The sacrament does not make you a Christian, even as an adult and a profession of faith. But why? We're back here. Something mysterious happens. Or there's a seed that's planted. You are given the sign and you are sealed. So what happens in the baptism of an infant? You have the mystery and you have the seed. Mystery is the Holy Spirit works. You don't necessarily see it. There's no response except if a child, especially a young infant, is taken from its mother's arm, it begins to cry and it cries into the microphone and everyone hears it. I've had that happen quite a few times. And you have to talk over the crying child. But something of the work of the, of the Spirit begins to take place. They are sealed. And again, look at a seal in the Scriptures. And a seal is a mark that is put on something. Revelation thirteen fifteen to 18 is one that people like to use. That those who were against Christ were sealed with a mark of the beast, the number 666, which I think is the name of Nero. Uh, it's not that people are going to be walking around the earth with 666 on their forehead. But it says they've been set apart for exactly that way. And, and this is the, again uh, the mystery part. And, and I've picked this up recently in my own studies. Which means, which tells you why you come to Sunday school in the morning. And church. Because you never outgrow learning. You're always like, here I am, I've been doing this 40 years and I found something new that I hadn't even thought about and had never been told to me. It comes out of a form of Reformed theology which I said, yes, okay, it's probably good. Maybe not. He said, what happens with infants is a seed is implanted in the person. Just like you put a seed in the ground comes springtime. And it begins to work its way out. Who gets that seed? Well, again, you go back to your idea of predestination and election. That from before the foundation of the world, God chose his people. And it wasn't if, as if you came to the point where you made a faith, all of a sudden God said, yep, that's my child. And now begins to work with you. God has been working for you since before the foundation of the world, before there ever was light. He's been working with you throughout your whole life. In fact, your background, preparing you for who you are. And when you're born, if you are one of his, he works in you. And part of it is planting that seed. It's that seed that helps you. It's that seed that doesn't regenerate you 
but it's a seed that sustains and preserves and prepares you until the Holy Spirit regenerates you and you respond in faith. Remember I said, it's not faith produces regeneration. Regeneration produces faith. You were dead in sins. You have to be born again in order to believe. That seed continues to grow within you until the Holy Spirit comes and then all of a sudden it pops out just like the crops do after the seed has been doing its work. That's what's taking place. I mean, to me that helps explain some of the people that I have come to know who say, I don't, you know, when did you become a Christian? They say, I I don't know. Ever since I was two years old, I loved Jesus and I wanted to be with him. Well, they never made a profession of faith, but that seed was at work. That seed has been worked. How about if you look at your own life? I mean, I went through church. I went, I was part of every Sunday I was at church. I went to the youth group. I did all sorts of things. I went to church camp. I mean, you can't get any better than that. And it wasn't until I was almost 19 where the spirit regenerated me and that seed popped out. But that seed certainly helped me as I was growing up because it kept me from doing some things that I do. And I, I didn't realize you, you don't do things because you've been baptized. I just knew you didn't do things like that. What about the child who's not been baptized? Or, yeah, uh, or who has been baptized and yet never believes? They're not part of the elect. God simply allows them to go on the way they are. That's predestination and if you have problems with predestination we'll talk about that but that's a biblical doctrine and it's not God looking down and saying who's going to choose it's him choosing you from before the foundation of the world that always amazed me see and this is what happens in baptizing infants the spirit does something plants a seed you have the sign upon you And the Spirit seals you for the day when he's going to regenerate you and bring you to new life. And that's why the church has, throughout all the centuries, said, well, credo-baptism is good. You can be a Baptist. Pedo-baptism is even better because it shows that we are a community and baptism, the sign of the covenant, is for the whole family your individual family, and the whole community. Now, if I have convinced you, then I can sleep well tonight. If not, you think about that and wrestle with it, as most of us have had to wrestle when we think about baptism and the baptism of infants. Amen.